Welcome to the third podcast in our First Peter sermon series, Through the Fire. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live streamed from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Bruce Bentley will be continuing our series with a sermon called, To See What Can't Be Seen. to uh, seeing what can't be seen. It was Saturday, April 26th, 1986. Anybody remember that year? Okay, three of you, great. It happened, it's part of history, 1986. And on this particular day, it was a little after 1 a.m. in the morning, and a safety test at a nuclear power plant in Chernobyl, Ukraine, went terribly wrong. Impatience, incompetence, and a faulty reactor design all contributed to a terrible explosion that blew into the night sky hundreds, hundreds of tons of highly radioactive concrete, steel, graphite, and numerous deadly elements that I can't pronounce. Fearing that whatever happened might lead to a core meltdown, which was the kind of catastrophe that everyone feared the most. Two engineers that were still in the uh, intact control room were sent to a spot near the main part of the reactor core to manually lower rods and uh, to, to turn things that would allow water to come into that core to cool it down and to get away from, the, uh, from what it is that they all feared so much. So they were sent to this area to manually make some changes uh, to do those things in that superheated reactor. And what they saw, which I'd like to get to, was something uh, like that. And it bewildered them. There was no core. The area that they were sent to, to address, to change, to help, it was simply and completely gone. So they returned to the control room, reported on what they saw and what they didn't see, and their supervising engineer refused to believe them. Many things could go wrong, but an explosion couldn't, or so they were taught to believe. Soviets don't fail, first of all. If there is anything in the rule book or in the manual, that was, that was the first thing. Soviets don't fail, and they believe that reactors can melt down, but they don't blow up. So the orders to try to improve the condition of the core were useless, no matter what the supervisor said. Uh, those two engineers came back, the the supervising engineer asked if they were successful. Did they do what they were told to do? Did they uh, turn the dials and whatever so they could cool down? And they simply said, there's nothing left to be cooled. They shouted that back to their supervisor as the worst nuclear disaster in history began to unfold to the world. They had the evidence. 
And then the supervising engineer went out to see for himself, and he too saw. But no matter what they saw or didn't see, they could not believe their eyes. This just doesn't happen yet. It did happen. Now, believers in Christ uh, have an altogether different experience, uh, which others have a hard time believing or understanding. Peter began this letter, this letter that uh, John began a couple weeks ago in, in 1 Peter. He began his letter reminding us that according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope. Now, this activity or this action of being born again is not something that physically you see happen. No one can say they saw their, your spiritual delivery in the way that God works in the human heart and life. No one can say, ah, I was there at the moment when this new life was delivered and born. That's not the way God works in us. So we can't see that, yet Peter is describing something that uh, is beyond our seeing, that Jesus, at least in Peter's time, Peter saw Jesus with his eyes, of course, but the people he's writing to have never seen Jesus, and yet he goes on to say that even though we haven't seen him, we love him. Now think about that for a second, and especially for those of us who are used to growing up in church or being in church or you've been in church for a while, uh, and the, the wording or the language becomes familiar, but just take a step back for a moment and let the profound idea sink in. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though we have not been around him personally and seen him with our eyes, we, meaning believers in Christ, we have decided to trust him, to believe him, to believe in him, sight unseen. Now, what, how, what, uh, what does he say in the rest of that verse? Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with what? Filled with glory. Not only do you just kind of believe that he exists, not, not just that, but you love him and you place your life trust in him. Someone that you've never seen, you've never audibly heard his voice, you've never been able to reach out and touch him, and that's kind of a huge thing, isn't it? Just think about that for a moment. Trusting your life into someone that you've never seen or heard or touched. That's what Peter begins with in explaining to us how great of a salvation that we have. Now, which one is crazier? I want you to ask yourself this question this morning. Which one is crazier? To look right at something and not see it. The Chernobyl guys. Ugh. It's supposed to be there. I can't believe it's not there, but it's not. To look at something and not see it, or to see nothing and still, believes, still believe confidently, most assuredly with your whole heart even, to see nothing or to see no one and yet still believe that he exists and to do it with joy, with life altering joy, this inexpressible joy. When you think about it for a moment, which I hope you are, that's kind of a big, it's kind of a huge thing. 
So while you're pondering that, consider this. Believers in Christ, followers of Jesus, Christians, whichever term that you prefer using, believers see, see with eyes of faith. And then act on what it is that and who it is that we do not see. Now that alone sounds kind of crazy. And especially to a watching and waiting world wondering, what are Christians really about? What is the church really about? What does it come down to, right? What does it boil down to, this Christian stuff? And we're doing stuff like this that does sound kind of crazy. But the eyes that we see with, the believers see with, have been opened, we believe, as followers, opened by the power of a resurrected Christ. So it's not just another religious idea or another religious leader somewhere out in the world in the pantheon of options. We believe in a man named Jesus who is God who came to earth and died and then was resurrected to live forever. That's who we believe in, still sight unseen. And these eyes, eyes that look out into things by faith, begin to see how rejoicing, like John told us about last week, how rejoicing in various trials is even possible. Eyes that take in the glory of Jesus. The really cool thing about this first part of 1 Peter chapter 1 is this. It begins and ends with Jesus and not you or me. What begins in the story of Jesus according to his great mercy, verse 3, it causes us to be born again, and then he begins, Peter begins to work through, okay, what does that mean and what is happening here? And, and actually, you can rejoice in the trials that you have. And then at the end of verse 7, uh, all of this, this testingness and the, the and how we're being proved genuine by faith and what God is doing, all that is to be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We see by eyes of faith throughout this. It begins with Jesus and what he started by bringing us to salvation, and it ends someday in this glorious return of Jesus when eyes that see by faith will not be limited anymore and will see in person a living breathing, walking, speaking Jesus Christ. In all this time, in all of our lives that we dared hope to see in faith then becomes this physical reality before us. That's where Peter is leading us, but there's so much more that's going on in this chapter. He's only beginning to set the stage about what it is that we see. More must be said. So let's look at verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, okay, by, by faith, what, what it is that we can't see, he goes on to say this, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So he moves us into concerning this salvation. He wants us to get deeper into what it is that we believe, what it is 
that changes us that we cannot see with our eyes. He's filling out this understanding, okay? Which is absolutely necessary if we're going to ever be able to rejoice in trials. Because let's be real, no one does that. At least naturally, no one looks at hardships or complications to say nothing of actual persecutions and says, bring it on, that makes me happy. No one does that, right? So if we're going to look at this text with anything other than oh, just a nice devotional thought or this is a nice uh, or good inter intellectual understanding and a religious faith, no, he's talking about the salvation that we have that's real, that enables all of us as believers to go through testings and trials. The salvation that, uh, that results in our being born again is, what does he say? Earlier in the chapter, he says it's inherited. We didn't earn it, uh, but we get to receive it. It's imperishable. It never dies. It never goes away. It's undefiled. It's so perfect and pure that even you and I, we can't screw it up. It's unfading. Think about that for a second. Unfading. Every gift that you've ever gotten for Christmas, for birthday, for Father's Day, Mother's Day, whatever, it's pretty sweet at first, right? You unwrap it and, ooh, look what I got. It's another tie. Or, you know, I don't know what gift you got recently. Uh, maybe it was something really cool. Maybe it's keys to a new car or something. Uh, but, but for a while, it's pretty spectacular, especially if it's given to somebody that you care about. And then no matter how big the gift is, the glory fades every time, right? Uh, it's pretty sweet for a while, but after a while, it's not so great. It becomes old or smelly or used or starts to deteriorate or fall apart. But we have this salvation that is unfading. Believers, remember the time when, you, when the light went on in your head and your heart and you first trusted, when you first believed. Remember how wonderful that moment or that time was in your life. What Peter is telling us is the glory of Jesus alive in you doesn't go away like any other gift. It doesn't degrade. It doesn't decompose. It, 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 in fact, it, in many other ways, it becomes even greater because you get deeper into it. So that's for starters, but there's more that he goes on to describe all these really, without faith, unbelievable things, not seen with our eyes or controlled with our will. Concerning this salvation, he says what? Number one, it was predicted or it was revealed to Peter and before Peter to the prophets. The prophets were writing or serving you, he says. Well, how does that work? Because the prophets didn't see you either. Uh, they didn't look, they, there's no way. There were centuries uh, before the time of Christ. But Peter was saying there's a bigger picture that's going on. Because in some ways, the prophets like Isaiah that we read about, we're going to read from him again, that he served the, his immediate time and people, his contemporaries, right? But the bigger picture is he wasn't really serving them. He was post-Christ mission and resurrection He's serving you so you could see with a different set of eyes. Verse 11, Peter tells us, tells us that the Spirit of Christ was with them. So the prophets 
spoke of something else or someone else coming, even though they couldn't see him, even though they didn't understand really anything about the will of God other than what the Spirit of God spoke to them and then eventually spoke through them, which is one of the reasons why Peter, so many times, First, Second Peter, so many times refers back to the original Testament because he's drawing back from this wealth of information that has already been printed and read at this point for centuries, that the Spirit of God already said this, but now we see the greater, grander picture to what is going on then. So Peter draws it out, and here's the cool thing. Here's what I find. The more I read the original Testament, especially as we're talking more specifically the prophets like Isaiah and others, there's a longing from the original Testament that matches my longing, and maybe yours too. In other words, these original guys, prophets, they, they wrote with a longing for something and someone better. And there's, in an, it, with the conviction from the Spirit of God that there will be someone better. They don't know who or how or when, they don't have any of the details, but there is a longing that comes through those passages. And we as believers also have a longing. Not the same longing, but it's a parallel because we long as we look with eyes of faith and believing more and more in Jesus and understanding this world is not our home, that there is someone better. That we also have a longing for Jesus to come back. And it all comes into into focus and everything is revealed. And all that has been broken is made right by him. Uh, even better than what it was before. That's the kind of thing that we long for. So we've got a parallel longing for the Old Testament prophets and what we have now. Got a quote here from a scholar I'm reading uh, that does a great job in, in succinctly saying what's going on. Jesus is not simply the one of whom the prophets speak. He is the one who speaks through the prophets. Let that one sink in. Because most of my life, I just stopped at the first half of that sentence. That, yeah, that, uh, that they, spoke of, uh, they spoke of Jesus coming and blah, 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 the end. But there's something much greater going on that Peter reveals to us. That he is the one who speaks through the prophets for our benefit. So, original testament and all that it says is not some ancient, unrelated, unimportant add-on in the New Testament. We need it. Peter needs it. We need it. It fills, <coughs> excuse me, fills in the gaps of what we need to understand seeing by faith. So I'm going to add one more verse here that, that uh, is just a glorious uh, finish to what the uh, prophet spoke of. So they didn't know, they didn't see, already said that. And then along comes, after the birth of Jesus, this old guy by the name of Simeon. Anybody ever heard of him? He was this guy that was led by the Spirit of God, who loved God, and at some point in his life, the Spirit of God said, you're not going to die until you see the one. I mean, what an awesome thing to, to receive from God himself. So he's hanging out by the temple. He's waiting, 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 waiting. I don't know exactly how long he had to wait. We don't know, but his life probably was filled with a lot of waiting. 
and he gets to experience what everybody before him longed for. And I almost can't read it without tears coming to my eyes because of the weight and the significance of what happens. And as he hangs out of the temple, uh, Joseph and Mary bring Jesus for the purification rite of the temple. There's a sacrifice that has to be made. Luke chapter 2 tells us of that. And the Spirit of God leads Simeon to this poor couple with their baby, and Simeon takes the Messiah in his arms. For centuries, the longing, the not seeing becomes sight. And then what does he say? Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For what? My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. He stands there with God in his arms. Can you imagine that just for a moment? And for his eyes to finally see what everyone has longed for and to be there in the moment as a part of this revelation, this new revelation of God's plan, not just for Israel, but for everybody. The eyes suddenly have sight. I just think that's one an awesome message just there in Luke 2, that all of it is leading somewhere, and even the Old Testament guys, faith is never in vain. No matter how long God calls us into a situation where we have to wait, no matter what the testing and the trials are, we have to wait through and endure some of those. No matter how difficult the situation is, there will be a response. God has not forgotten, and he has not left his people bankrupt, that faith matters, that there is an answer coming, and the eyes will eventually see. So, it was predicted but more than that, it involves suffering. Now, verse 11 gets into that. The Spirit of Christ was speaking, and he was indicating when he, uh, he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So this is a real head-scratcher for anybody and everybody in the original Testament before Christ. Sufferings first, then glories. Now, Different perspective of Peter now and for believers. But before that, nobody got it. Nobody could understand it. Everybody rejected it. So many, almost everybody probably in Peter's day and before him would read the original Testament and see nothing but a glorious Savior and salvation coming. Overthrow the Romans, establish a new kingdom, and so forth. But Peter is drawing out, we cannot forget, that God's path to glory is through suffering. And just as it happens with Jesus, his followers can expect the same. Now, uh, it, that's not to say that it wasn't in the original Testament. The prophets didn't speak of it. In fact, they did. People chose to, to, to not believe it, to reject it, or not really fully understand what it was that the prophets spoke of so it's a little longer passage, but it's worth reviewing from Isaiah uh, chapter 53. What did the prophet speak of? The Spirit of God teaching them, revealing to them the sufferings first. Isaiah says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet 
We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our, our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By his oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. No one saw that prophecy as the prophecy concerning a suffering Messiah. No one could see, could that possibly happen? Could God the Father possibly have a plan like that to intercede for sinful people, those who did not deserve it in any way, yet God the Father would choose to do that for me, for my benefit, completely unmerited? Who could pot? I cannot imagine that. Yet the prophet spoke of him, and Peter clues us back into the fact that it's true. Believe it or not, it's true. Jesus came to suffer so that as early as earlier in the chapter, as Peter said, that we could be sprinkled with his blood and find born again salvation. Only through the illumination of the Spirit could the prophets actually see and write about something that made no sense even to them. And one more thing. This new salvation, concerning the salvation, it surpasses even angelic comprehension. Not even angels in all of their glory, in all of what they know, in the presence of Almighty God. Not even angels can, can comprehend. Verse 12 says that there are things into which angels long to look. There are things that they don't comprehend or understand. And there's something in, and there's a lot we don't know about angels. I don't know how angels long for something, but Peter clues us in to the fact that they have the ability to do that. So what is it that angels can't see? They are in the presence of Almighty God. They are there. They know the story. They know God who with his words spoke the universe into existence. Talk about incomprehensible. They're in the presence of that God. 
And there's still something that they can't see, that they can't know, that they can't understand. And it's simply this, that God the Father, Jesus the Son, that Jesus, who they are in the presence of, would choose, would elect to come to elect us. That he would come down as a baby so Simeon could hold him in his arms. Fragile, uh, vulnerable, that God would become that, a human, so we could find forgiveness and see what that is what the angels can never see. Why? Because they've never been in the same situation. When we sing of the glories of the grace of God, angels shut up. They can hear us sing. They can know, you know, from a distance now, especially what they've seen Jesus do, but they can't own salvation. They get hushed. When we sing of the grace and the glory of God revealed in our lives, what he's done for me, when you guys, when we all belt out songs of worship and praise concerning salvation and grace of God and what he's done, which we do every Sunday, angels can only listen. They don't know and they long to look into what would it be like. What would it be like to see that? to have that knowledge, to have that experience. We've got something that angels can't touch. Isn't that awesome? To be born again is that precious and that wonderful and that amazing that even angels, all they can do is long for that. All of this and more, Peter is cluing us into, Peter's reminding us of, yet at the same time, we sometimes struggle, right? So we're bringing it back to reality and where we're at as, as we wrap this up here. Believers, if we tell the truth, also have a hard time believing at times because of the vision thing. Why? We want to see and know and control everything now. That's just the truth, isn't it? We want to do that. We want to know what's going to, what, what is going to happen in our lives come October or November with school, with jobs, what's going on. Uh, you know, faith is a nice academic idea, but I want to know now what's going on and what God is doing in, in, even in the life of our church. I, I'd rather know, in fact, I most of the time demand that I know now. That's most of us, if not all of us. The direction of our lives, the immediate future, even what's going to happen to me this afternoon. If my salvation, however, is found in the one that I can't see, then I must live by what I can't see. In other words, faith. And if I live by faith, then I have to come to terms every day with the ultimate reality that I'm not master of my fate, or my future, or my situation, anything. The only thing I can control is my response to the uncontrollable at my best. That's all I've got. I mean, I'm telling the truth here. That's all I've got, and most of the time I fail at that. I'm not in charge. God is, and that is a real-time struggle. Yes, my decisions real-time matter. They always do, and I'm held accountable to them, but at the same time, I'm called to, by faith, yield to Jesus, who Scripture says, 
brings all things together for the good of those who are called by him, who know him. Good meaning his plan good. Not good meaning it feels great right now. And that's where we get stuck in the mud and the rut most of the time, right? Am I right? I want what feels, you know, for the good right now. Make it feel good. Huh? God's plan is for a greater good. And I'm called to be a part of that whether it feels good right now or not. So this is at, at the same time both unsettling because I don't like many times what I see and experience and what God is doing and comforting because I know and I'm reminded and scripture reminds me and it, through prayer I am reminded that he's still at work. He's not done yet. And in fact, he is, he's promised to finish the work that he has begun in me and in you. So we're never left destitute. We're never left on the side of the road wondering at the end of the day, what did God do? We can still respond in faith and trust that God is doing. And there's something new and there's something wonderful as a part of his plan. Keep returning to him in faith whether we can see or you can see or not. Next thing I think, I mean, there's probably other things we can come up with, but at least these two. We resist following someone who suffers instead of conquers. To see a suffering Savior was always difficult. In the past it was, and you know what? Honestly, it still is today. The call on the Christ follower, those who believe in Jesus from Christ, is what? to take up your cross and follow me. What? I want to follow you into joyous, uh, what? Uh, great living, uh, conquering living. I want to have it all right now, that kind of stuff. And we see that even the gospel gets confused with those kind of victorious, uh, as you want it, messages even today, all the time today. But Christ keeps calling us towards the other path take up my cross and follow, take up your cross, he says, and follow me. You know, every Sunday, we, we lug this around right here. And right now, it's a little bit easier because everything stays on the stage. We still have to move it. But for years, and many of you know this, we would put it in that trailer and haul it out of the trailer and you get slivers. It's starting to get worn down after a few years. I don't get as many slivers and maybe you don't either if you help move it. Uh, but it's just heavy enough and just big enough, you, when you're unloading or reloading, you can't carry other bins or other stuff. It's, it's that demanding. You got to put everything else down to be able to move it and place it and then put it back when the service is done. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, there is no way you can come away with that thinking but I can get away with carrying multiple things at the same time. You follow me? That I can carry with my past, my failures, my own agendas or priorities when it comes to anything, religion and life. I can just all bundle up together, right? And carry the cross and all that other stuff and, and I'll just make do, huh-uh. That's an unforgiving thing. 
when you grasp on to a cross, you cannot carry anything else. It's Jesus and his way and nothing else. And an actual cross is a perfect illustration and reminder of that. His way is the only way. We can't add, add on or manufacture, embellish. It will leave you empty and longing, hopefully, for the real Messiah. Our ongoing challenge, especially as, I, as we chart our way through 1 Peter, is to be reminded of his salvation and simply this, to see what can't be seen. To trust in the one that we cannot reach out and grab onto. To go where we naturally wouldn't go by faith, trusting Jesus is enough. I can't, I, we're going to say this a lot through the rest of this book. Because the, the, the limitations of only doing a little bit every week is you lose track of the bigger context. Ancient people, or in Peter's time, they'd read the whole letter. So you hear the echo of the first part and the last part. And we can't do that when we divide it up. And that's part of the problem of the way we approach things. So I'm going to keep reminding us. The first 12 verses, we've got to keep those in mind with everything else that we talk about. And here's why. Here's where Peter takes us. Be holy just like God. Huh? <laughs> what? How, how in the world? If that's just a message without the prior context, we're going to blow it. Love each other from a pure heart. You know, not just getting by with each other. Love each other to that extent. Keep your conduct among non-believers, not just those in the church, those who don't understand you or what you see or how you live. Keep your conduct honorable among everyone. Honor everyone, including non-believing authorities, who could honestly care less about your church. Honor them. What? That's the calling that we have. Be subject even to unjust masters, a.k.a. employers. Bless those who do evil against you. Live for the will of God and not for your passions. And on and on the letter goes. If we forget the first 12 verses, then what do we have? We have to sort of manufacture these things and do our best today and hope I don't screw up on it tomorrow. No! The faith that he gives, the eyesight that Jesus gives, the change that happens as we trust him enables these things to happen in a pure and wonderful and glorious way. That's where I hope that we continue to go together over the next few weeks. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you. Every hour we need you. And as we're reminded of the calling of a Christ follower, we're humbled even to a greater extent. Lord Jesus, we want what you have, and we confess that again, that we are completely incapable of manufacturing it ourselves. We long for the day when you return and faith is sight. But right now, Lord, Increase our faith and our trust by enabling us to see what you have for us, to see with eyes of faith, 
transform us, Lord, by what only you can do in us as a part of this great salvation we have. Warm us again, Lord, if we've grown cold to what you've done, and revive us, Lord. Revive us, bring us to the place that we rejoice, even in trials, that we rejoice with this inexpressible joy that's based in our Savior who gave everything that we could be forgiven and restored and inherit this internal, unfading promise of life with you. Jesus, change us so that we're all the more compelled and motivated to respond in glorious praise by the living sacrifice of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're continuing our series in 1 Peter. We also have multiple podcasts to check out, including Genesis, Crossroads, Ruth, Faithworks, and Glory. For upcoming news and events, check out our website at mycityonahill.org.